and the commander was so engaged and he was really lifting them up. He was complimenting them. He was edifying them. Make, here's a secret. He was making them feel good about themselves and the responsibility that that individual staff officer had. And the staff officer loved that, that environment and that climate because the staff officer felt good about himself with the tasks that he was given, the responsibilities and the, and, the, and the purpose that was provided to him and the organizational resources to accomplish that. So he felt, he, it was not that he felt good about the boss, he felt good about himself based on what the boss prepared for him in the climate that the boss uh, established. And those organizations performed magnificently. They didn't, make, they didn't do everything purpose, I mean perfectly, because they did make mistakes, but the boss allowed those opportunities to make a mistake as opportunities to learn and grow. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast, sponsored by Applied Software. You're invited to join our MEP in construction innovation adventure with a mission to propel this great industry forward. My guest today is Lieutenant General Robert Castlin Jr. He served 43 years in the U.S. Army, led our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, is the former superintendent at West Point, and is currently serving as the 29th president of the greatest school around, my alma mater, the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. Welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you very much, Todd. Go Gamecocks. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to be with you. I appreciate it very much. Honored to be here. Uh, the honor is all mine. I love seeing the Gamecock emblem coming through, shining back at me. It's, it's a great sight to behold. <laughs> uh, well, first off, Thank you for your distinguished service to the, the country. It really is an honor to get to, to speak and learn from you today on culture, character, and teamwork. Honor to be here. I'm glad to talk about that. Uh, so I always like to start by setting the framework for, for what we're discussing. How would you define what a culture of excellence looks like? No, that's a great uh, question. So excellence means something to you that's probably different than me than to somebody else. But the way I define excellence is performing to the upper level of your potential. Mm -hmm. And if you can consistently perform to the upper level of your potential, you're in that area that you're probably uncomfortable or you're probably likely to make some mistakes. And it requires an organization that allows you to make mistakes because those are opportunities to learn. I like to think of it this way. If you break a bone and, you, and it heals and heals correctly, the bone is stronger where the break occurred than it was before the break occurred. Mm. If you make a mistake and learn from that mistake, then you are stronger and you're better and you become a better person. You become a better, better in character. You become better in competence because you have learned from that. So it's important to have a culture that allows that sort of thing that underwrites the risk of mistakes so that you can have those as opportunities to learn. If I had a culture that I was going to cut you off of the knees every time that you had made a mistake, then people would not be out there stretching. They would only do what they're told. They would sit behind their computer screens and they would just do exactly what it says to do and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And your organization would only survive on the talents of the leader. It would not survive on the talents of the, of all the employees. You want employees who are out there stretching and reaching and performing to the upper levels of their ability. And when they do that, yeah, they're going to learn, they're going to make mistakes, but they're going to learn from those mistakes and they're going to be better. What does it mean to perform to the upper level of your ability and, and to live a life of excellence? Just think of it this way. So if you're a mathematician, just think of a standardized curve, a normal curve. 
and averages where the medium is, right? This, you mm -hmm. know, right in the middle. Sure. But we don't want to be average. If you're going to be in a culture of excellence, you want to perform better than average. So better than average is like two standard deviations to the right. And as that curve comes down, you know, you're going to be performing to the upper level of your potential, two standard deviations to the right. Mm -hmm. But like I said, that area is uncomfortable. That area is new for you. That area is probably going to make you a little bit nervous and you're probably going to be reluctant to do that. But I want to create a culture where I want you in there. I want you to operate in there. I want you to learn in that area. I want you to grow and stretch. Yeah. Because when you stretch, the culture stretches and the organization stretches and we become better. And then when you're comfortable in that area, guess what? That becomes your new average. So that whole bell-shaped curve just not, now shifts to the right. Right. And sure. then what does excellence mean at that particular point? It goes off to the, goes to the right two standard deviations again. That's, so exponential. That's, what, that's what a culture of excellence is. And that's why leaders need to underwrite risk and allow people to get into those areas to learn and to grow and to stretch. And then they just drag everybody else with them. I guess Coach Mike Krzyzewski said it best. He said, I don't necessarily strive to win every time. What I do is I strive to be excellent because when I'm excellent, then success naturally happens. Mm -hmm. And and you know, it makes a lot of sense. When I'm excellent, success naturally happens. Yeah, it becomes a byproduct. That's right. Love that. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more for sure. I actually uh, credit my days at South Carolina for uh, instilling that in me. I was a uh, letterman at, on the swim team there and uh, Coach McGee Moody was a, a big uh, push you outside your comfort zone in, in the pool and in training and uh, you know having that time of, being, being way outside of physically where you think you could go. And then you see yourself rise to that level is, is really cool. And then you keep on going, okay, well, what's the next challenge and what's the next, uh, so I, didn't know, I didn't know you were a swimmer. So I'm looking at your hand there. I'm not sure if your listeners can see this as well, but I see that big yeah. ring there. You know, that's what right. That's my Southeast conference ring or what is it's that? My Carolina letterman ring. Uh, congratulations. Thanks. Awesome. It was a great time. I would, gladly do it again in a heartbeat well you know for all the Gamecocks out there the women's uh, soccer team were the southeast conference champions and they're getting their their uh, southeast conference championship rings here this week oh nice and the that's coach, a hey, big hey, moment guys and we have a ring for you i go yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice that's awesome that's a very big moment congrats right. to them uh so what are some determining factors for you on assessing an organization's health in terms of culture well, the, that's, a, that's also a good question. It's kind of tied to what I said previously. The organization has got to encourage you to get out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. It's got to underwrite the risk of mistakes so that you can use those as opportunities to learn. Um, it's got to be risk. Of, a lot of people are afraid to make mistakes and they become risk adverse. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you're going to be an organization that's going to grow, you have to accept risk. But, it's, but, you're, but there's a difference between risk and being reckless. Mm. So reckless means you have no idea what's going to happen. You have not prepared for any type of contingencies that are out there. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, then you're lucky. Mm -hmm. That's being reckless. You know, be, understanding risk and accepting risk means I understand where the risk is. I'm going to put some risk mitigating factors in, in place and I'm going to do everything I can to 
uh, account of that risk, but even still that I'm going to use that risk in the upper, and even if I don't accomplish what I need to, and I, may, and I fall short as a result, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to get better. You know, so that, so organizations that have those sort of climates are the ones that really uh, the growing organizations. I had a great job in the army. I was at this training center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, where these big units would come through. And I was the evaluator of the unit. I was the uh, evaluator of the chief operating officer of that of that unit that went through. Okay. So it was a laboratory of leadership. I saw great leaders come through, like I David bet. Petraeus and people like that. Yeah. And I saw some pretty lousy ones too. <laughs> and, I believe that as well. <laughs> um, it was just a tremendous laboratory of leadership. But I would go into some of these organizations. And it was, it was great. So I'd walk into the headquarters and normally they would update the commander at night in the evening and mm -hmm. call it the battle update briefing. And in that battle update briefing, the staff is briefing the commander on everything that was going on. And the commander was so engaged and he was really lifting them up. He was complimenting them. He was edifying them. They, here's the secret. He was making them feel good about themselves and the responsibility that that individual staff officer had. And the staff officer loved that, that environment and that climate because the staff officer felt good about himself with the tasks that he was given, the responsibilities and the, and, the, and the purpose that was provided to him and the organizational resources to accomplish that. So he felt, he, it was not that he felt good about the boss, he felt good about himself based on what the boss prepared for him in the climate that the boss uh, established. And that was the key. So the staffs are not only briefing, the staff leaders are not only briefing the boss, but even the lower people within the staff organization are falling over themselves because they want to show off their stuff, you know, and because they just felt good about themselves. And those organizations performed magnificently. They didn't make, they didn't do everything purpose. I mean, perfectly because they did make mistakes, but the boss allowed those opportunities to make a mistake as opportunities to learn and grow. Autodesk Construction Cloud helps mechanical, electrical, and plumbing contractors win more work productively every day. The world's leading specialty contractors rely on Autodesk Construction Cloud to increase collaboration, mitigate risk, and reduce rework as they deliver complex work faster. With Autodesk Construction Cloud, teams are able to win more work by tracking bid invites and managing workloads all from one place increase efficiency by standardizing on common communication and documentation processes across all projects, capture a complete history of work, and ensure fast, complete payment. For mechanical, electrical, plumbing contractors, this results in more productive field and office teams, delivering value and exceeding customer expectations and better business outcomes. Win more work, mitigate risk, ensure quality, and connect your crews all through Autodesk Construction Cloud. Learn more at construction.autodesk.com. They are also a sponsor at this year's MEP Force Virtual 2020 Conference. Yeah, sounds like a high trusting environment. Exactly, exactly right. And then I walk into some organizations and you walk into the headquarters and it was like ice, it was cold. There was, there was no one talking. Everybody was sitting behind their computer screens. There was none of this formal, informal dialogue or engagement or conversation like that. 
When it, and when it came time to brief the boss in the evening, you knew exactly why. Because no one wanted to brief the boss. So by default, the senior staff officer was the one to brief the boss. And as soon as he briefed the boss, the boss came right after him and just chopped him off at the knees. Yeah. And he really embarrassed the subordinate in the in in front of all his peers. Mm-hmm. So no one wanted to be briefing the boss because they never wanted to go through that. They didn't want to get their knee chopped off just by briefing somebody and be so publicly humiliated and embarrassed. Sure. So it was just a, it was a climate that was just totally opposite of those units that performed very well. And those units just disintegrated. They just absolutely disintegrated. No one exercised initiative. No one reached and stretched. Everybody did exactly what they were told and nothing else, because if they did something and made a mistake, they know they were, they knew they were going to get chopped off at the knees. And those organizations only performed as good as their boss. That was it. Yeah. Where the learning organizations, the developing organizations were stretching and they performed as good as the, the talents of every single member of that organization collectively. And that was a huge difference. So I knew, I knew that it was not the talent of the boss. It was the ability of the boss to create a climate to grow. Mm-hmm. and to learn and to, and to adapt. And those organizations were the most powerful organizations I've seen. So how do, if you're a cold organization, how do you move closer to being the learning environment? You get a, you get a boss who knows how to... How yeah, to, starts at the top down. Climate, you know? Yeah. Um, which, which really brings you to a good point is that sometimes bosses don't know that they create those climates. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not reflective. There's no introspection. There's no assessment and there's no development. Um, mm-hmm. And because there is no mechanism to evaluate the boss, where the boss has the ability to see himself or herself, then the boss is just going to go on with some habits of bad leadership that's going to polarize people rather than integrate and lift people up. One of the most effective leadership development tools that are out there is a 360 assessment. And I would recommend a 360 assessment to anybody in a leadership position, but it's going to take a little bit of humility to get that 360. You're going to have to, (laughs) you're going to have to, if you agree to it, you're going to have to read it and you're going to have to listen and reflect on it because you're going to have, people are going to come back and tell you stuff within this 360 that will shock you and perhaps that's a good thing. You know, it's going to, you're going to see yourself from peers. You're going to see yourself from your boss's perspective and you're going to see yourself from your subordinates perspective and, and any inflated opinion that you may have had of yourself, I'll guarantee you will be, will be shot at when you see the results of a 360. But if you are reflective and introspective, then you're going to be able to look at that stuff and learn and then right. you can modify and develop a personality and develop, develop the leadership traits that are going to make you a better leader. So that's one of the things I would recommend and encourage leaders to do at all levels. Yeah. And then it's taking the uh, humility to not be super defensive about what that, that advice and, and input yeah. is coming in. Because the, the easy thing to do is to justify and try to say, oh, well, you don't know what I'm, it's on my plate or I'm going through and this is why I did that. And take the advice, learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're releasing a, a book that people can go ahead and pre-order. It's called 
if I got it right, the character edge leading and winning with integrity. Why'd you decide to write the book? Yeah, well, it was good. Thanks for bringing it up, Todd. So here, I got a book right here. Here's here's the gallery nice. copy. Looking good. It comes out in October. So nice. <laughs> I encourage you to get it. Um, actually, I co-authored it with a guy named Mike Matthews, Dr. Mike Matthews. He's got the doctorate in character and character development. I write the stories. He writes the theory, you know, so he kind nice. of- Nice. Good partnership. It is. I enjoyed writing it. Um, well, you know, because I, I really believe- that the most effective leadership trait in effective leadership is trust. Mm -hmm. And trust is a function of competence and character. So if you're in a leadership position, you have to be effective in leadership. You, in other words, you have to be effective with your subordinates. You have to operate in an environment with peers and you have to be effective in an organization that you are a follower of your boss. Because your boss is your leader. In each one of those relationships, if you're going to be effective, you ha they've got those people have to trust you. The boss has to trust you. If the boss doesn't trust you, you're probably going to go get another job, I'm sure. Um, if you want to move the organization forward, you can't do it by yourself. You need your subordinates. So if they're going to follow you as a leader, they need to trust you. And you're going to be an opera, you're going to be in an environment where you're going to be working with people and they need to trust you as well. Mm -hmm. Further, and all professions have clients, you know, in the higher education, our client are the people of South Carolina, our students. In the military, our client was the American people. And you have to have a trust relationship with your clients. Mm -hmm. So I read the book called The Speed of Trust, um, a great book. And I encourage you to read it if you get a chance to read it. Um, but nevertheless, the, the book says that trust is a function of competence and character. Mm. Competence and character. So your subordinates need to know that you're a competent person. And they need to know that you're a person of character. You can be number one in your class intellectually, but when you fail in character, you fail in leadership. Why? Because they lost trust. They don't trust you anymore. And if subordinates don't trust you, they're not going to work for you. If you are a man or a woman or a leader of character and you're tremendously competent, your boss is going to know because you're competent and you're a man and a woman of character, your boss is going to trust you. And and you you know that when you have that trust relationship with your boss life is good you know so really character becomes such so important in this i have seen over and over again some incredibly competent men and women and although they were tremendously effective in competence they fell apart their organization fell apart because there was a breach of character mm. and when i was in iraq commanding 22,000 soldiers in northern iraq during the surge I had leadership character issues and I was writing letters of reprimand to a number of leaders a lot. And I was saying, what's going on? Why am I writing all these letters of reprimand? Because they're all career enders. You know, whenever you in the military get a letter of reprimand like that, it's the end of your career. You might as well just get out of the military and then go do something else because you're not going to get a, you're not going to get promoted. So so what the point there is that you better if in somehow some way, you know, be a leader of character. Because I saw all these sort of things. Now what was interesting was it was not that the leadership position was 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 removed. It had an impact on the entire organization. When the leader of the organization is fired or removed, uh, especially if you're in the middle of a combat situation or you're in the middle of a life and death type of situation, 
the absolute last thing you want is to have the leadership removed out of that type of organization. You want a leader who can be in that organization, moving the organization forward, trusted, have the trust and confidence of clients and, and the people of that organization and move it forward. But if you, even though you're competent, if you fail in character, you're removed out of that organization, that organization falls apart. And then you have an organization that's supposed to be accomplishing a mission that's unable to do that. So that's why I saw that over and over and over again, very competent men and women who were removed out of their organization because of character issues. And it not only had an impact on them, it had an impact on the organization itself. Um, so character becomes, you can be number one in your class, but if you fail in character, you fail in leadership. <laughs> and, and becoming a leader of character is the most important thing that I think that we can, be, that we can do as leaders. Yeah. During these uncertain times, Meztech Machinery has found a way to help its customers with service and installation virtually. They have virtually installed plasma cutters, lasers, cut to length lines, and complete coil lines. It has truly been amazing what their team has been able to do to keep the contractors producing and to provide contractors with new installs all remotely. For more information, go to meztechmachinery.com. They are also a sponsor at this year's MEP Force Virtual. Go to MEPForce.com to register for $99 using promo code BTG99 for your chance to talk with Meztech about how they can help you. Any examples kind of stand out in your mind of this person led with character really well? I had an incredible leader who was a, what we call a battalion commander in Western Mosul. Mosul, if you remember, was where ISIS was and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and he was an incredible leader of character. He led from the front. He um, was very courageous. The troops absolutely loved him. His, he was a man of a, a tremendous integrity. His word was what was true every single time. And you know that he had a really trusted relationship with the men and women in his battalion. He had a battalion of about 850 soldiers. And uh, he was really, really good. I mean, he was not only competent, but he was really a, a man that everybody trusted. The Iraqi military leadership trusted him. And um, unfortunately, he was killed by a explosion of a vehicle explosive device that ran up against his Humvee and he detonated it. It was a suicide thing and he was killed instantly. Hmm. Just really unfortunate. Um, we all loved him. And I was, so he worked for a brigade commander and then the brigade commander worked for me as a division commander. So I was two levels above him, but I knew him very well. I knew his battalion and they all loved him. And it was such a tragic event that occurred in his battalion and the impact it had on the organization, the organizational structure. Um, that was really, I, you know, so he was a man of character, but when he was removed, the impact it had on that organization was amazing. I mean, the organization really suffered and they were never the same. And then to complicate things, we found someone to put him in there as the boss, a very competent person and within two months, we had to fire him for a character issue. You know, so the unit in the organization went through the loss of a very competent 
man of great character who was a very effective leader, they were thrown back on their heels. They were given another leader who was competent, but then failed in character and had to be removed again. And that organization was never the same. So this is, that's a clear example to me of why character becomes so important. The difference between those two commanders was like night and day. And the really, the one variable that made the difference was character. That's what really made the difference more than anything. Um, anyway, so that's kind of an example I would, I would throw out to you as, um, you know, an example of character and the impact of character, plus an impact of a lack of character. Yeah. Why do you think that, you know, it seems uh, that today character is kind of something that isn't getting a, a ton of attention nowadays. And, you know, people are looking to the, the voices and amplifying those are just kind of screaming the loudest and, and not really holding up character as the, the main trait. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Um, I do know this though, that when, when if I'm going to work for somebody, I want to work for a man of character or a woman of character. Um, I do know this, that if in my position, that if I have a defect in character, it would have a huge impact on this organization. Not, not only the university, but it would have a huge impact on the faculty. It would have a huge impact on the staff and my personal staff. You know, so I am always conscious of my character and not only what I do, but of what I say. And not only in my words, but in my actions. And it's, uh, it's tremendously important. And it reminds me all the time that every single word I say, every single act that I do, um, it must be interpreted in light of a man and woman of character and a competent man and woman and a man and woman of character. You know, and I, and I just think that that's tremendously important. I also want to make the point that character is not just uh, an ethic that has moral implications. Character is an ethic of grit and perseverance and determination. You know, it's like you as a swimmer, as an intercollegiate swimmer, or someone who has played intercollegiate sports, or even professional sports, you know that the grit and the tenacity and the resilience and the perseverance, and to persevere under adversity is a character trait just as much as I'm not going to lie or cheat or steal. You see, oh, for sure. Character is just not the moral impact. It is also the impact of, of persevering under very difficult circumstances in the crucible of challenges and issues again and again that, are, that, that face you. You know, what, if you're the one that's going to throw your hands up and quit, you're the one that's going to throw your hands up and turn the other way. You're the one that in the midst of adversity, you're just going to not persevere through that. That's a character issue in itself. You know, it's sure. not that you're not lying or cheating or stealing, but it's just a matter of how do you deal with life's challenges and how do you deal with the, with the obstacles and the minefields that are in front of you all the time, all the way? Do you turn around and quit or do you have the perseverance to persevere through those issues and the grit and the resilience, knowing you're going to make mistakes, but knowing you're going to have the opportunity to learn from those mistakes and you're going to get better? Yeah. Well, those high pressure situations is when character is really revealed. That shows you what you got. Yeah, you know, I, you're exactly right. You know, so iron sharpens iron, right? You know, the old parable, yeah. there, iron sharpens iron. Yeah. You know, so if you find yourself in a tough situation, you'll you'll find the true you. Sure. And so will everybody else. <laughs> but at the same time, it's going to mold you if you allow yourself to be molded. So that you throw yourself in the furnace, the iron will sharpen you. It'll get you better. It'll get you stronger. 
it'll make you a better person. It'll make you a better man and woman of character, a better leader, a better follower, a more competent person because you learn, because you are sharpened as a result of the fire, if you allow yourself to do it. But if you're in the middle of the fire and you turn and run the other way, you don't get the benefit of learning as a result. Yeah. So what is that, uh, you know, being a resilient and adaptable leader really kind of mean and, and look like to you? Um, well, I'll give you another story if I can. This yeah. There's another Iraq story. So I had, a, uh, I had another battalion commander who was in a very, very complex area. And there was a lot of fighting that was going on. It was blood. It was near the town of Samra. Samra um, is the Saladin province where Saddam Hussein's province was. It also had, it was a Sunni area that had a Shia mosque. So you had the Golden Mosque that, if you believe, if you remember way back in 2004 time frame, a guy named Zarqawi went in there as a Sunni. And in order to build the Sunni Shia stripe, he blew the mosque up. Mm-hmm just really, really ugly. So it was a very ugly area, a lot of fighting, a lot of killing that was going Mm. on. So this is what adaptability looks like. So what does he do as a battalion commander when he was given that responsibility of that area? So instead of fighting his way through it, he finds two wealthy Iraqis. He builds a relationship with them. He convinces them to pull their money and to create a bank, a bank was never heard of or existed in Saddam's era. So he, they didn't know what a bank was, never mind, you know, um, that they were going to make one. Yeah. He convinced them to do that. They trusted him and did it. Wow. And they started loaning their money out. And as they loaned their money out, this old dilapidated tomato paste factory took a loan from the bank and fixed the tomato paste factory and it got it operating again. And this is about four years after 2003, after we went in there, four or five years. And all the farming in the area just stopped altogether because of the war. And because it stopped, all the canals were busted and the electricity wasn't working or anything like that. So what happens now, they get the tomato paste factory working and now there's a market for farmers to start farming again. And they hadn't been farming in five or six years. Yeah. So if you're gonna start farming, especially in arid Iraq, you have to use irrigation. You gotta get the water out of the Tigris River into the canals and out of the canals into the fields. So all those canals were all busted. They were filled with silt and they had to be repaired. On top of that, if you're gonna pump the water, you you need electricity to get the pumps to work. So the electrical grid was not working and the canals were all busted. So all the farmers said, there's a market, I can grow tomatoes, I need to start farming again. They put pressure on the local government to repair the canals mm-hmm. to, get, to get the electricity grid up and running. And this battalion commander, by the way, is in the background trying to make all this happen. He's trying to get the government to respond. And the government yeah. was. Wow. And then so the government does. They get the pump working and they get the all the canals work. They start getting the water to flow. And next thing you know, they're growing tomatoes like crazy. Wow. So they start bringing, put their tomatoes in the back of the pickup truck. They drive them over to the tomato paste factory, which happens to be right on the main highway between Baghdad and Mosul. So they're waiting to drop off their tomatoes and they're plugging the highway. And everybody's, all the Iraqi regular people are just getting all upset about the fact that the highway's all plugged up. So some entrepreneur uh, Iraqi takes a plow 
and he plows out a field and creates a parking lot. So you get the cars off the road. Another entrepreneur Iraqi says, all these guys are hungry. I'm going to put some food stands up and some fruit stands up. Then he starts selling all kinds of food. And next thing you know, it becomes a restaurant. Another uh, entrepreneur Iraqi actually uh, builds, a, builds a couple shacks. They become places where they can sleep. And next thing you know, the shacks become, believe it or not, it became a hotel or a motel. Not like you would imagine, but I mean, just yeah. where Iraqi was. And then all these other businesses started uh, built, starting coming online, like like tin cans and labels for can, for cans and things like that. And the whole market, the whole economy in that area just blossomed as a result of this tomato paste factory. Yeah. And once the once the farmer started farming, the guys who were fighting the fight were now had a place to come back home and to start working. There was a market for the tomatoes and people were making money. There was entrepreneurial going on all over the place and people started building an economy again, right in this local area. And the fighting in that area stopped altogether. It became one of the most safest areas in, in my entire sector. Wow. This is adaptability. This is intellectual agility. Intellectual agility was the intellect to be able to understand where opportunity exists and then to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. And if you can't find where the opportunity is to be able to have the intellectual agility to create it, to, re to recognize where it needs to occur and then to create it. And this is what this commander did. He saw where opportunity existed to build an economy, what was necessary to build that economy. And he started by building a relationship with two wealthy men. And oh. he knew what his vision was. Yeah. So he was not only, a, he not, not only had the intellectual agility, he had the, he had the adaptability to be able to fight a war without firing a shot, you know, it's a it's a good ripple effect from one. So that's that's an example leader. of intellectual agility and adaptability, and I guess that story tells uh, answers your question itself. So. Yeah, that's a great story. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit ASTI.com and let them know we sent you. Uh, what do you see as the difference between a follower and a leader? Well, the first lesson of leadership is first how to be a follower. So when I went to West Point in 1971, you know, they stripped us of all of our civilian clothes. They put our military clothes on us. They shaved our heads. They made us look like just, just all the same. They said, you are now in the military, and whenever someone talks to you, you will answer with one of four answers. The answers were yes, sir, or ma'am, no, sir, sir, I do not understand, and no excuse, sir. So we, if we were going to become leaders, the first thing we had to do in being a leader was learn how to follow. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, if you're going to be a leader, you got to be a member of three teams. You got to first of all, create an, an atmosphere where you organize your team. You're the leader of your team. You create a climate where people have the opportunity to grow. 
and they can collectively in that organization accomplish a mission with its purpose. You're also going to be a member of a second team that you're going to have teammates and you're going to have to look after teammates and, and work in conjunction with teammates. And then probably third, and don't forget this, it's important to understand that no matter who you are, you're still a follower. And you're going <laughs> to, even the president of the United States is a follower. Why? Because he's subordinate to the people. Yeah. The people elected him, right? So he is subordinate to the people. And if he, if he doesn't understand where the people are, and where the people are moving and trending, you know, he's going to have to learn how to follow the people. So I don't care where you are in rank, you're going to work for somebody. So you still have to learn, even though you're a leader, how to be a follower. Mm -hmm. And the key thing about followership, this is what I learned many times. The key thing about followership is understand when your boss is in phase one or your boss is in phase two. And let me explain what I mean. Yeah. So phase one is normally the boss is faced with a problem. He or she needs to make a decision. The boss seeks advice from subordinates, even you as one of the subordinates. The boss wants you to express your advice with candor and with your subject matter expertise. So when the boss is in phase one seeking information, they want, they expect you to bring that information forward with a recommendation and with your candor. Mm -hmm. Then at some particular point, and this is where followers get messed up all the time, the boss transitions from phase one to phase two. And phase two is I have now made a decision. So I'm no longer looking for advice. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer looking for candor. I have made the decision. Now, what do I expect of my subordinate when I make a decision as long as it's moral and ethically correct? What I look for in my subordinate at this particular point is someone who understands the mission, who understands guidance, who understands intent, and who can execute it without, without any more guidance or intent. You understand it, go forth and execute it. You are the thoroughbred horse, move out. And yep. move out there as long as it's mine. A lot, what happens a lot of times is, you know, we'll present a recommendation to our boss and our, our boss does not necessarily make a decision as we are recommending. So how do we react when that happens? You know, some of us take it personal. We wear our heart on our sleeve, you know? Yeah. And when the boss makes a decision, then we leave the meeting and we start whining and complaining about our boss. And when we go back to our organization complaining about our boss because the boss didn't listen to a recommendation, you know, first of all, you, if it's a moral ethical decision, the boss has a right to make that decision. That's a decision. It's a decision. So if that's the case, then execute it. The last thing you need to do is start talking about your boss, because if you start talking negative about your boss, to your people, trust me, it will get back to the boss. That's number one. You don't want that to happen, but it will. But number two, the subordinates will start, will not trust you. Because if you're talking back, if you're talking behind the back of your boss, they're going to say, well, he's going to talk behind my back sometime too. So I don't have to sure. watch what I say. So that whole trust relationship becomes, becomes chiseled as a result of people that just don't like that. So if you're going to be a good follower, be a good follower in phase one and be a good follower in phase two. Mm -hmm. And even still, even though you're a leader, you're, you still have to be a good follower. Yeah. I love that phase one and phase two. That, uh, that's great. Uh, how do you go about developing your values and then getting the, the team bought into it? Fortunately at the university of South Carolina, we inherited a creed. It's called the Carolina creed. <clears throat> so I, I keep it right here. 
and I'm sure you're familiar with it. You know, I'll practice personal academic integrity. I'll respect the dignity of all persons. I'll respect the rights and properties of others. I will discourage bigotry. But it really inherits a set of values. Mm-hmm. You know, so the leader's responsibility is to communicate those values and to live those values and to reward those values. Mm-hmm. If you communicate and reward those values when you do that, then you are setting a climate of what acceptable and unacceptable behavior is. And the beautiful thing about that value set is it defines the left and right parameter and it gives subordinates the opportunity to live lives, to live a life of excellence within those parameters. And that's ideally what you want. So the parameters are defined about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable as defined by the values of our organization. So by inheriting the Carolina Creed, I was able to have a set of values. Mm. If I did not have the Carolina Creed, then I would say, well, I would collectively just bring everybody together and say, what are our values? What do we stand for? What does this university stand for? Mm. What are the values that are uncompromising to each and every member of this organization? And once they're defined, then they're understood. And it's my responsibility to do a number of things, to communicate them over and over and over, not a one-time thing, not put them on a poster and just put them up there, but to communicate it over and over and over again. Right. Then I have to demonstrate it as a leader, and I expect my subordinate leaders to demonstrate those values in everything that they do. And then I have to reward those values. And what, what I do to reward those values is that I have the presidential coin. You heard my coin, right? So I love to give out my, this is my coin. So I love to give, I love to give nice. out a coin, you know. So if you look at this thing, it says, it says right up top here, for excellence presented by the president. It's got the Gamecock C right there. Yeah. But we cool. reward this. So when we see outstanding values that really help define our culture, you know, I, 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 put, I pass this out all the time, you know, whether it's faculty, whether it's staff, whether our students, you name it. You know, I, I take great pleasure in, in passing this coin on rewarding. It's just a little thing. It's what, a couple of dollars? Yeah, but it has just it makes a big impact. impact. That's and awesome. It rewards that value set and it helps to define the culture. And then there's going to be people that are outside that value set. So they're going to be operating outside those those parameters. And as much as you don't want to do it, you have to hold them accountable mm-hmm. at the same time. See, and that's what is, uh, you know, something that you really got to be careful about. So, yeah. so. Uh, well, my last question for you, why is Gamecock Nation the best and position for an even better future? Oh, game, well, Gamecock. <laughs> you know, well, frankly, I mean, if you look at the demographics of <clears throat> where our nation is, that's growing the biggest and the fastest in the south, southeastern part of the United States. You know, so South Carolina is smack in the middle of the southeastern part of the United States, whether it's Florida, whether it's Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. So, I mean, so the growth is, is phenomenal. So the growth is not only a population, the growth is in the economy. The economies of the southeastern part of the United States, you know, all the way from Florida up is just booming. Uh, our economy here in South Carolina has got so much potential, and, and it really is. Hmm. The other thing, the beautiful thing about being a, game, a Gamecock is that we are the flagship university. Because we're the flagship university, it's our responsibility to serve our client, the people of South Carolina. So we are, my vision or the vision of this university is to be the preeminent flagship university in America. Mm-hmm. 
And so people say, well, how are you going to compete with the Ohio States and the Michigan States and the Penn States and those other flagship universities for their state? And it's not just competing in terms of U.S. News and World Report rankings, although we are pretty good. I mean, we have the number one honors college. We got the number one business college and business programs. We got number one uh, freshman experience. We got a number of number ones here at the University of South Carolina. But what will make us preeminent is that we're going to, we are the flagship university of the state of South Carolina that serves as client the people of South Carolina. We will serve the people of South Carolina. We will find ways so that every student in a K through 12 can, if they so choose, that they will be inspired to do what is necessary to, to have access to this university if that's where they want to go. We will do everything that we can to make sure that every single student in K through 12 in the state of South Carolina, assuming that they have access, can afford to come here. So we will make sure we will serve. We will make sure that we have academic programs that feed the economic growth of this state. We'll make sure that we have academic programs that feed the school systems of this particular state. And those are things that we'll make sure that we're going to do. But we're going to serve the state. We're going to serve the people of the state of South Carolina. And if we're going to do that, we're going to make sure our university is accessible, affordable, and it's got the right academic programs that will be that will feed the economy and the people and the education education system and the other corporate headquarters of the state of South Carolina. That's what's going to make us uh, make us special. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for all you're doing there for for Carolina and continue the the good work there. It's awesome. All right, Todd, my pleasure. It's really great to be with you. Thanks for letting me just talk about leadership and, and especially about character. I appreciate uh, it very much. Honor's all mine. I have a, a ton of takeaway notes for sure. Thanks so much. Uh, and thank you to those listening. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. Until next time, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Thanks for listening to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Enjoyed the episode? Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bridging the Gap is directed by Todd Wyan, produced by Alyssa Chartier, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2020.